Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. On April 25, 2018, law enforcement announced they had identified and arrested the man they believed to be the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. How, after 42 years, was there finally a big break in the case? It came down to a small team of six people spearheaded by now-retired Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes and a new revolutionary forensic science technique the team pioneered, investigative genetic genealogy. Well, it's a process by which um, you use your forensic evidence to develop a genealogy profile, which is separate than what your traditional forensic DNA is. And from there, you use you know, genetic genealogy databases to determine if there's somebody that's within those databases that may be related to your offender, in a sense. And then from there, if you are able to identify a potential relative, and, and just, it's important for people to understand that we're not getting other people's DNA. All that we're finding out is, is there somebody in this database that has a relationship, potential relationship, family, to your offender. And from there, if there is, and it's within reason, meaning, you know, like a second or third cousin, you then do the, really what's the law enforcement piece, which is building the trees to determine, you know, who might be within that relationship. In November of 2017, Paul Holes approached Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, with the idea to use ancestry and genealogy research to identify the Golden State Killer. Intrigued, she immediately dedicated resources from her office in the form of investigative assistant Monica Sadkowski and Lieutenant Kirk Campbell. When you think of DNA in law enforcement, you, you generally think of CODIS, which is you know how our, our offenders are identified in our national DNA databank. And with uh, investigative genealogy, it's still using autosomal DNA that CODIS is based off of, but it's, it's a much, much different testing process. It's looking at a much, much larger area of uh, DNA, you know, 700,000 to a million uh, points uh, along the human genome versus, you know, 20, 23 markers along chromosomes that uh, CODIS is based off of. So it's it's really apples and oranges to standard uh, DNA testing that we're used to in law enforcement. It's called genotyping is what's done for investigative genealogy. And, and so it, and that basically is enabling you to determine, you know, relationships, even distant relationships uh, of your offender in order to identify them, where CODIS is more designed to you know, identify a particular person. It took a powerful open genealogy database called GEDmatch and a special team of just six people, Kirk Campbell, Monica Sykowski, Paul Holes, from the FBI, Steve Kramer, and Melissa Parasot, and genealogy expert consultant Barbara Ray Venter, a little over four months to identify the suspected Golden State Killer using his DNA and investigative genetic genealogy. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joke Finciun the producers behind the HLN documentary, Unmasking a Killer. And today we'll explore the journey, process, science, and investigative work that went into identifying the suspected Golden State Killer with some of the key players responsible for this amazing feat. Lieutenant Kirk Campbell, Monica Sykowski, District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, Curtis Rogers, one of the founders of Jetmatch, and Paul Holes. April 24th, 2018, we received a simple call. They got him. 
And with him, they meant a suspect in the Golden State Killer crime spree. With that came a whirlwind few weeks with little sleep and a lot of adrenaline. And apart from the who, the next question was how. And to give us some insight as to how, after 42 years of searching, law enforcement finally identified and arrested the man they believe to be the Golden State Killer is none other than retired Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes. Welcome. Great to have you. Hey, guys. How's it going? So excited. So let's get going. The short answer to the how is DNA. We know that. But for those of us that didn't pay too much attention in biology class, give me the basics. Like, what's DNA? Why is it important in crime-solving techniques? Well, DNA, you know, of course, DNA is what makes you you. And uh, it, it turns out that, you know, most people share a lot of the DNA the same. A large percentage of it, you and I have the same DNA. However, there's small little areas of the DNA that differ from people to people. And if you have enough of those small areas and identify enough of those, you can basically identify a person. And, and, and people cringe in the, the forensic science community when you say, oh, DNA is like a fingerprint. But in some ways, it is. And so when you're looking at these small areas of DNA across the genome, you have enough of them you are able to effect an identification. And this is being used and has been used in law enforcement uh, since really the late 80s. Uh, however, you know, with the Golden State Killer, we had his DNA, no question about it, but we weren't able to figure out who he was using traditional forensic DNA testing. So let's talk about that, because there's all these different kind of profiles out there. We know about YSTR profile, different points, forensic profiles, genealogy profiles. What, what do they kind of mean and which one was important in this case? The modern DNA profile and what the FBI's database, DNA database is based off of, is what's called uh, short tandem repeats or STRs. And so that's when somebody has been arrested and, and is compelled to give a DNA sample today as their reference standard to go in the database, the testing laboratories produce an STR profile, and it's just a series of numbers across different markers of the DNA, and that goes up into a database. And then when you get a crime scene sample, something that the offender left behind, you generate that STR profile, again, just a series of numbers, and then search this database to see if somebody in the database has the same sequence of numbers. And if you find somebody, in essence, that's the person who left that crime scene sample. So that's your short tandem repeat. Now, as time went on, forensics started focusing in on the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is what makes men, men. Uh, women have in their sex chromosomes, they have two X's. Men have an X and Y. So that's where we started focusing in on these Y STRs, in part to look for male DNA. But it also turns out that that Y chromosome is passed down from father to son through the generations. So this was how I first got involved in pursuing genealogy aspects with the Golden State Killer is I was looking at the YSTR, hoping to find somebody in a database, a genealogy database, that had the same YSTR profile as the Golden State Killer. And that could give me insight into the person's last name, for example, since surnames in our culture are, in essence, preserved just like the YSTR, like the Y chromosome is. You started looking at the genealogy databases, and did you have to get a different kind of profile? Because obviously, if we're swabbing our cheeks for 23andMe, that's saliva. You guys are dealing with a semen sample. Like, How do you get then that profile that you can upload to these genealogy databases? Initially, it was searching genealogy databases for that YSTR profile, and I was striking out with that. And then that's when ultimately had to generate a profile that the genealogy testing companies do. I had to get a profile that would be compatible to search the genealogy websites, such as GEDmatch, and that's a completely different type of profile. So I had to get a source of the Golden State Killer's DNA and send it to a genealogy testing lab to produce this profile, and it's called a, a SNP profile. A single nucleotide polymorphism, SNP profile. Um, and it's a profile that looks at hundreds of thousands of single points across the entire genome 
uh, of DNA to, in essence, generate a barcode for that person. Wow. And so that's what got you to Ventura? That ultimately is is what led me to Ventura, exactly, because I, as I was marching down, recognizing that this genealogy investigative avenue was going to be the most likely way to solve the Golden State Killer case, I had to get a source of DNA. I had consumed all the Golden State Killer's DNA from my cases in Contra Costa County. And so myself and then my my partner from the FBI, Steve Kramer, we started this roadshow where we're going to the Southern California agencies that had homicides that still had DNA evidence in their property rooms, asking them if they would be willing to provide a sample so we could pursue this investigative genealogy technique. And Ventura was the one that said, yes, you can use ours from the Charlene Smith and Lyman Smith double homicide. And you you guys even found an extra rape kit, right? You kind of hit the jackpot in terms of the DNA down there. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, part of the issue that we were looking at is we needed a lot of Golden State Killer DNA in order to do this technique, at least at the time that we were pursuing it. And so the biggest concern was is that all the previous DNA testing on the Ventura case possibly would have consumed so much of their original DNA from the that had been collected at autopsy that we would not have been able to pursue it. But the investigator for Ventura, Steve Rhodes, he discovered that the original pathologist made a habit of collecting two sexual assault kits, one that went to the investigating agency and then one that stayed at the coroner's office. And when he went to the coroner's office, they found a sealed sexual assault kit from Charlene Smith that hadn't been touched since the day of her autopsy. That's amazing. What did that feel like? Well, that was that. That's where all of a sudden we had hope. Uh, we had the Ventura Crime Lab extract the DNA from the semen. It was vaginal semen from Charlene Smith. Uh, she had been raped. And they came back with a huge amount of Golden State Killer DNA, so much that when they were initially offering me some extracted DNA, I told them, I can't accept that much. I don't want responsibility <laughs> for that much DNA. Give me less. I, I only need, you know, so much. And so they they scaled it back. And then uh, Steve Kramer, using his FBI resources, uh, we were able to get that uh, extracted DNA from the Golden State Killer from the Ventura case to a genealogy testing lab to get that SNP profile. And that that's the big step right there is you have to generate that SNP profile in order to go anywhere on the investigative genealogy front. Got it. Now, at what point do you go to Sacramento and talk to D.A. Schubert? So, you know, we were marching down this investigative genealogy, and it was myself and Steve Kramer, and I had reached out to the genetic genealogist, Barbara Ray Venter. So Steve and I were the ones that ultimately were able to get to the point of having this SNP profile generated. During this process, uh, I happened to be up in Sacramento investigating the case, and I called Monica Tchaikowski, the investigative assistant up there, to talk to her about some, some thoughts I had. And they're like, hey, can you, can you drop in and tell us you know, what you've been up to? So I, I go up there to kind of give them an overview of, of the process. And uh, DA Anne-Marie Schubert was very interested. So she sat down at the table. And then I walked them through uh, a variety of things. But most importantly, I briefed Anne-Marie Schubert on this investigative genealogy process that we were doing. And uh, she, as she always has been, was like, well, let's do it. And so that gave, that just kind of uh, emboldened me, so to speak, because now I had an elected DA uh, support in this this very novel and, uh, and potentially controversial process. Is this kind of when the whole team comes together? Right. So what ended up happening was, is that um, as Steve and I were marching down to, to get that SNP profile, he had an assistant, a crime analyst within the FBI, uh, Melissa Parasoff, and she was helping him. Um, and I told Steve, I, we absolutely need somebody from Sacramento because I believe our offender is Sacramento based. And so if we do get some matches, 
we're going to need to be able to tap into the Sacramento uh, data structure that somebody from uh, Sacramento law enforcement would be able to access. And because I had previous um, experiences with both Kirk Campbell and Monica Tchaikowski from the SAC DA's office, I knew they were the right people to bring in. And Steve was completely open to that. And in essence, at that point, once um, I briefed Anne-Marie and Kirk and Monica were, were uh, excited about the possibility and willing to help, that was the, the, the formation of that core team. So the team is you, Steve Kramer at the FBI, Kirk Campbell, Monica Tchaikovsky with the Sacramento DA's office, and then the outside consultant being Barbara Ray Venter. Right. And and we also have to remember Melissa Parasot, the crime analyst from the FBI, also contributed to this process. So there's five of us within law enforcement and then Barbara, the outside consultant. So six people total. And so at what point then did you decide to run this through GEDmatch? Uh, that was that was decided very early on during uh, my my research into the process. It became quite apparent that uh, GEDmatch was a powerful tool in part because it had DNA profiles from differing genealogy companies. So GEDmatch has people who have DNA profiles that they had generated in Ancestry, uh, profiles from 23andMe, from MyHeritage, et cetera. So it's somewhat of this, this mixture. And so you kind of get a, a sampling of these other larger databases. And the real attractive thing from a law enforcement perspective is that it was open source and public. Uh, they, in essence, you just had to create an account and explicitly say, yes, I want to make my DNA profile publicly searchable. And so from a law enforcement standpoint, that allows me to bypass certain legal avenues, hurdles that you have to go through if I wanted to go after Ancestry.com or 23andMe. I didn't have to get the search warrant or have Steve issue a federal grand jury subpoena. We could just create it, what we call an undercover account, a user account within GEDmatch, and do our search. And that's what we decided to do to see what would happen. So, so what were you hoping for? What was the best case outcome? The best case outcome is you search GEDmatch and you find you know, the Golden State Killer's brother in the database. Uh, you know, the closer the relative, the easier it is. Um, unfortunately, that's not what we got. What did you get? The best matches that we got were on the order of third cousins, which I didn't, e- I couldn't even tell you before I started this process what a third cousin <laughs> was. I just know it's somebody that's distantly related. But these are individuals that you share great, great grandparents with. And until you actually see it on paper, you don't recognize the magnitude of difficulty in terms of trying to winnow down everything, everybody within that kind of relationship. Because quite everybody has third cousins, and you have many, many third cousins. Uh, It's just, that's just the way it is. So once we started this process, you know, we get the the, the list of matches. You don't just get one match. You get, you know, 50 people that are matching within the database, and they're ranked based on the amount of DNA that you share. And initially, you're excited going, oh, this is going to be easy. You know, we got a whole bunch of people to, to, to work with. And it's, it's very exciting thinking we finally have a clue to lead us to the identity of the Golden State Killer. But then we started doing it, and it became a huge undertaking. And I didn't appreciate how huge that undertaking was going to be when we first started it. So, yeah, tell us about that four months that followed. Well, you know, initially... Um, and, and this was in part just my ignorance to how this technique works. When we got the, the initial matches, what I did, because, you know, I knew Monica Tchaikowski from SAC DA's office is amazing when it comes to doing this type of work. I got the spreadsheet of matches. I emailed it to Monica and I literally just said go without any other type of direction, thinking she would be able to start hammering away and finding you know, who the Golden State Killer was from this process. Uh, But as we got going for a few weeks, just kind of doing our own thing, 
we were just not getting anywhere. And that's when Barbara kind of poked her head in to see what we were doing. And she was like, oh, no, no, <laughs> that's not how this is done. And so Barbara gave us the, the structure uh, and the technique, and she provided the expert oversight to say, focus in on these matches. And it's a triangulation technique. And so what I did is based on Barbara's input, I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to give Kirk and Monica what I consider to be the most important matches to work. Um, and then I'm working a whole bunch of matches. Steve Kramer and Melissa are working a whole bunch of matches, and we're trying to do this triangulation. Uh, but the the critical in the best matches were given to Kirk and Monica. So this sounds like a lot of legwork, both database-wise and then probably finding names and birth certificates and death certificates and marriage certificates. And and so as you're building this tree, how big does it get? Well, we ended up building roughly on order of about 25 different family trees. Uh, the The one tree that ultimately led to identifying the Golden State Killer, um, we... I, I never went back to see how many people, but we easily exceeded over a thousand people in that tree. And you're right. It's, it's one of those things. And this is what Barbara was very uh, persistent on is that you have to double check every person that you add to this tree. You can't just rely on, you know, people who have submitted their own family tree saying, these are the people I'm related to because these people are often wrong. So now you're doing all that double checking. You're going to the census records. You're looking at birth certificates. You're looking at obituaries. Uh, and it's very, very tedious. And quite frankly, that's not my skill set. I'm not all about the tedious, but that's where somebody like Monica excels. Right. Now, and it's, it's interesting. I've heard numerous times that at one point you guys were actually out checking headstones. What, how, how did that fit into the puzzle? Well, that, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, Kirk is the one that ended up uh, dispatching. Uh, you know, this poor guy out in New York, uh, I think it was a state trooper. And we, we ran into a, a brick wall in one of the family lineages where we could not get past this this one uh, woman. We couldn't figure out who her parents were. And uh, that's where now you, you start seeing, OK, it looks like there's, uh, you know, a cemetery with that particular family buried there. We need to double check that. And unfortunately, there wasn't any pictures of the headstones in the uh, you know, the find a grave database, which we used extensively as we were building these family trees. So now that's where you call up and ask for basically mutual aid from a fellow law enforcement and say, hey, this is what we're doing. Do you mind? Can you go drive to the cemetery and track down this, you know, this particular person and send me a picture, you know, so we can add it to our, our family tree. So, okay, so this takes four months. You're building out this tree, and then you're starting to get into some names that look interesting. They're the right age, right race, right gender, maybe have a connection to Sacramento. And then you start eliminating them. How do, how do you decide whether this is a person worth pursuing or this is a name worth pursuing? Yeah, well, that's that's where, you know, knowing something about the Golden State Killer becomes critical in this process because, you know, we're working this this family tree that is becoming huge. And you know, we were, quite frankly, getting frustrated as because as we were building the family tree, most of it was predominantly people who lived and died uh, and stayed their entire lives over on the East Coast or in Ohio. And we're like, well, geez, we know, you know, we know the Golden State Killer was in California in the mid 1970s. When are we going to find somebody in this family tree that that is going to that we'd be able to place in California during that time frame? And then ultimately, we did start seeing people within the family tree having that California connection. So now when we get into these people, it's looking at, well, what do we know about the Golden State Killer? You know, we were very confident that this guy had been born between the ages of 1940 and 1960. And, you know, that that was an extreme range. He was likely more, you know, between 1945 and, and 1958. 
um, in terms of what his age when he was born. So now we're looking for males that were born between 1940 and 1960 that had this California connection. And then once you kind of see that, it's, it's, it's going and identifying, well, who are these guys? And this is where it goes into just traditional investigative resources where now, you know, I'm looking at, okay, who is this guy uh, pulling up his, uh, his DL information? I'm seeing this guy, you know, six foot four. And I'm going, well, that's not the Golden State Kill, you know, because a characteristic is, as we know, our guy was likely 5'8 to 5'10, plus or minus an inch. So you start winnowing the, the list down based on what you know about the offender until you get to a point where I can't eliminate this guy on paper. Now I have to start reaching out and doing just traditional gumshoe investigation, calling up or knocking on doors, you know, uh, people that would have known this individual to find out more about them to see how well they add up uh, with what we knew about the Golden State Killer. So you guys had gone through, you know, names that eventually you cleared either through, you know, driver's license checks in terms of height or, you know, DNA sample cleared. And, and you get to the name Joe D'Angelo. What was it like getting the call that, you know, this is just another name on the list or trying to clear or trying to see if this is the right guy? And you get the call from Kirk that the DNA sample that was taken from the car door handle had the majority of the Golden State Killer's DNA on it. What was your reaction to that after all these months of work? <laughs> you know, in some ways, uh, Kirk probably remembers maybe a, a a moment of stunned silence from from my side on that phone call <laughs> because it it was you know after I know for me you know being involved in the case at that point in time uh, twenty four years I mean that's a huge moment and uh, it's one of those things where. You recognize when when Kirk is telling me, you know, I knew right away, uh, you know, he opens up the phone call, Paul, you absolutely can't tell anybody. And so I knew at this point, OK, this is big. And and sure enough, he tells me at least what he knew at that time. And with additional questions, uh, I was able to pretty much uh, determine that, OK, we got the right guy. You know, I, I, I have the DNA background. Kirk doesn't or didn't at that point. And so when I asked Kirk exactly what the lab told him, um, I, I knew that, okay, D'Angelo's the guy. And then at that point, after you kind of recognize, oh, shit, <laughs> this, is, this is big, um, then it's, okay, what do I have to do next? You kind of, you know, kick into that uh, process of we got, this is, this is just the beginning, you know. 24 years ago, I started this thing. We got to this point. Now we've identified the guy in many, many ways. That's just the beginning of the investigation because it's a huge amount of work from that point on on a case like this. Right. Now, you're a science guy, right? So this first sample, it was not 100 percent match. That wouldn't come until the second sample retrieved from D'Angelo's trash. But you knew even with the first mixed sample that he must be the guy. Uh, why is that? Explain the science there. Well, so. The lab that tested the car door sample, you know, they got, it was, it was just contact DNA. Uh, D'Angelo, it was his car. He had been seen going in and out of that car. Undercover uh, a detective went up and swabbed the car door handle when, when D'Angelo was inside a store. And it came back. It, it was somewhat of a mixed sample. There was somebody else that was present, which, you know, with the car door, you could expect other people are driving that car. But the, the major donor of that sample matched the Golden State Killer's profile, uh, you know, basically at 20 out of 21 markers. Uh, and you have to understand that prior, just a couple years ago, the FBI's CODIS system had, was only looking at 13 markers. And now we have a profile that is matching ac across 20 markers because the FBI had recently expanded the number of markers, what, what are called the core loci that they use for their data banking. And so as soon as I'm hearing 20 out of 21, I'm going, it's him. You know, that, 20, <laughs> that 21st one wasn't a, a, you know, a mismatch. It was, it just didn't exist in the profile because it was such a weak DNA sample. 
So that's where I, I just knew immediately as soon as he told me, you know, the numbers that they were looking, I was like, OK, we got the guy. And now it's what, what's the next step? Well, we know what followed, right? Law enforcement arrested Joseph James D'Angelo, who has been charged with 13 counts of homicide and 13 counts of kidnapping with the intent to rob. Now, because of the statute of limitations, they could not charge him with the rapes. He is awaiting trial, has not yet entered a plea. Many people say at this point he is the alleged Golden State Killer, but you say no, he is the Golden State Killer. Can you explain your certainty? Right. You know, and, and, you know, when when you start saying alleged Golden State Killer, there's 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 a legality behind that. You know, uh, you're innocent before proven guilty, you know, and especially both in the journalistic as well as in the the criminal justice process. They're going to put that kind of qualifier on there. However, when you take a look at the evidence, we have a rapist and killer that left his DNA across multiple cases at different times. It was his semen. It's not something that somebody is going to easily get a hold of and plant the evidence. Secondarily, you have different crime scene investigators, pathologists, over time, at different points in time, collecting these samples, and then different laboratories generating DNA profiles from these different samples. And these DNA profiles are all coming back the same. That's how we linked the case, knowing that the three Contra Costa cases committed by who was known at that time as the East Area Rapist, now known as the Golden State Killer. Well, those those DNA, that DNA that was left in 1978 and 1979 matched DNA that had been left by the Golden State Killer down in Santa Barbara in 1979 and 1981, down in Orange County in 1980 and 1986. You know, so you ha- we were entirely confident that the DNA profile that we had generated for the Golden State Killer was from him and nobody else. We just didn't know who he was. And then over the decades, once we had that DNA profile, we've been searching for who that person was against the FBI's CODIS database that well over 14 million profiles that's being searched against uh, nationally. We're doing familial searches every year in California, looking for that close paternal relative in California database with no hits. And then using the investigative genealogy, which is DNA-based, we focused in on D'Angelo and we got a direct sample from him and it matched. And he's the only one that has matched that DNA profile that had been left at the crime scenes. And the the odds, you know, we're, we're talking uh, the statistics for that profile are on the order in, in excess of one times 10 to the 21st power or exceeding that. So this is an identification. Joseph James D'Angelo left his semen in these cases that we generated the Golden State Killers profile from. And that's where I say he is the Golden State Killer. Can't argue with that. (laughs) There you go. Um, All right. Well, we'll be talking more shortly about other details of the case. This is a great start. Thanks for sharing your insight into the identification of the Golden State Killer. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Hey, my pleasure. Paul Holes used the Open Genealogy Database GEDmatch to help identify the man law enforcement believes to be the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. To learn more about what GEDmatch is and the role it played in the investigation, Curtis Rogers, one of the founders of GEDmatch, joins us next. Paul Holes has credited GEDmatch, the public and open genealogy database, with being a crucial component in his search to identify the Golden State Killer. It's a fascinating and groundbreaking tool, and we're fortunate to welcome one of GEDmatch's founders to today's podcast to learn more about it. Please welcome Kurt Rogers. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. So, Kurt, let me ask you, uh, how would you describe GEDmatch to the everyday person who's, who's never heard of it? GEDmatch was a website that was started by people interested in genealogy, us, and we had developed some tools that were very helpful in our genealogical research, and we just wanted to share them with other people. So if I understand it correctly, if people submit their DNA, their saliva to like a 23andMe or an Ancestry.com, they get a file. And then within those services, you know, you can get connected to other people. But 
What GEDmatch allows you to do is connect with people who are in different services or just people who just happen to have their DNA file. Is that correct? Well, using those testing companies, you can find your matches with uh, not just those people, but you can find matches with second, third, fourth, fifth cousins. And you do the same thing on GEDmatch. But it, it's it's an open public database, right? So so someone has to actively participate and upload their file to then start searching. Yeah, I, I, it bothers me when people call it an open source, which you did not. But you cannot get on GEDmatch and just start poking around and finding information on a whole lot of people. You have to have your own information on GEDmatch, and then you use that to find matching data. And so, you know, I'm not a genealogist, but so what we're looking for is kind of overlaps within that DNA profile. And then the program then tells you, hey, this might be a relative, or is it like, this is definitely a relative? No, we cannot say it's definitely a relative. And that's a very good point. A lot of people say, gee, if the, the DNA says that you match, then you must be a relative. That's not true. You should always follow up with uh, a family tree and finding a paper trail. Right. Now, now, how many people are using GEDmatch on, on both sides? There are uh, well over 800,000 people that are registered to use GEDmatch. Uh, we have about a million two hundred thousand DNA kits on it. Many people who are registered will do it for their family or some you know, close group of people get their permission and uh, put their information on GEDmatch. That's great. And then there is a privacy thing, though, right? Like if, for example, my file is, is uploaded to GEDmatch and the computer thinks I match with somebody, I don't necessarily get that person's entire information download, correct? There's a big misunderstanding about privacy. You do not see any DNA on GEDmatch. The information you get is uh, that they would be about four generations removed from you. Mm -hmm. You would know how much of your DNA matches. Again, you're not going to see matches, but you see how much of it does match each other. Uh, We use maybe 200,000 little pieces of DNA. They're called SNPs. There are billions of those in your DNA. And 98% of it is shared by other animals. And if I do get a match to, let's say, a third cousin, do I get that person's name, address, phone number, everything? Or is it just a username that then I can contact through your site? We do show name and email address. However, we uh, advise people that if they'd like, they can use an alias and we would only show their alias. And they can develop an email address that is strictly for this use. Genealogy is a contact sport. You have to contact people if you're going to use it. There's no reason in finding matches if you can't contact them and find out their side of the family and try and figure out the family tree and and, uh, the stories that they know about your ancestors that you also know or can share. That's what genealogy is about. I mean, it is about making connections. So that makes sense. So talking about the thing that brought GEDmatch so much into the sort of like public consciousness, I want to ask you, where were you uh, and what were you doing when you found out about an arrest in the Golden State Killer case? <laughs> you really want to know? Yeah. I was in bed. I was in bed. <laughs> Good for you. I get. I wake up in the morning and I pick up my cell phone and see how, what kind of emails I am going to have to take care of. And one of the emails was from one of our users who said that uh, there had been a well, I had heard the day before there's this news conference, but they didn't say anything about GEDmatch. When I got this email, it said there was another news conference, and they said that GEDmatch was involved. And it was a real surprise. I had not expected that. Sure. What were your first thoughts? I was probably confused. I, I didn't know how this would affect our website. And for the next two weeks, I couldn't, you know, I, I had to try and keep low key as much as I could, which was very hard to do, and wrap my head around just what was happening and were people's privacy being violated and how should this be handled? Uh, And it took me two weeks before I could really figure out that no, privacy is not being violated. However, we do have a responsibility to tell all of our users that one of the uses of this site 
is is law enforcement. And and uh, if they have any concerns about it, we make it very easy for them to remove all of their data from the site anytime they want. So we you know pointed out how they can do that, and we had very few people actually remove their data. Now, it's pretty interesting because as far as the law enforcement angle goes, that's clearly not something you thought of when you launched the site. When did you first become aware that law enforcement was using this as a tool? Was it the Golden State Killer case? Yeah, until that time, I did not know it. Well, and it it kind of was a a first within law enforcement. It wasn't like law enforcement had been using it. Kind of Paul Holes decided to uh, eh, give this a shot. Get creative, yeah. No, but we had had always said in our terms of service that it could be used for things other than genealogy. Just that law enforcement was not one that we really thought about. And what have the reactions been from your users? Have you gotten positive reactions? Uh, you said some people may have taken their data off the site. The reactions were overwhelming. There's not a day even now that goes by in which I don't have people uh, saying how wonderful the site is and supporting me and, and the site and, and uh, encouraging the use for law enforcement. And in fact, many people who put it on. And one in particular, the first one I ever got on this, and there have been some others, but a woman who wrote me and said, it was a very, very quick two-sentence email saying, I want to make sure that my information is as visible on your site as possible because my father was a serial killer, and I want to make sure that unsolved cases out there I can bring some finality to cases where where people don't know what happened. That's remarkable. Remarkable. I cried. I literally cried. Yeah. And and there have been others. I, there are others now that say, well, you know, my family has a lot of criminals in it. I just want to make sure that if any of them are really vicious criminals, that, that um, you know, I want my DNA in your sight. Things like that. It does happen. It's been overwhelming. It has. I don't think I've gotten more than two or three nasty emails about it. But that's it. And the nasty emails are generally people who don't understand really what's happened. Right. And it's also amazing that there were a ton of other long, closed, cold cases that um, all of a sudden were solved. A couple in Washington. I know Parabon from a lab has been able to solve a lot. And, you know, C.C. Moore also credits Jed Match as being able to kind of put the pieces together. At this point, uh, we know of 23 cases. Wow. Of vicious criminals. Mm-hmm. Plus, there are oh, probably seven or eight does that have been found, uh, remains that were found dozens of years ago, and they can now identify who these are, and we brought some finality to those families, which is uh, just, to me, very heartwarming. It's, it's, it's obviously not a happy thing for families, but they are so pleased to know what happened. So it is heartwarming to be able to do those types of things. Uh, let me add one other thing. And that is, my guess is that maybe only one in 50, maybe one in 100 cases that are on which GEDmatch is a part where DNA has been put on or information has been put on our site from violent criminals, we only can solve maybe one in 50 or one in 100. I mean, it's it's a very, very small figure. So this is not a silver bullet to finding criminals. It's just one more tool in in a toolbox, but it's not, like you said, a guarantee. Exactly. And they're not found through our site. Our site only says, look, here's some theories. We're taking little bits of DNA from from many, many people. You know, these are fourth, third, fourth cousins. And you may have 20 or 30 of them. In the case of the Golden State Killer, there are 24 people who had each supplied a little bit of information, little matches, tiny matches, that was just the beginning. From there, law enforcement had to uh, use a whole lot of other databases. Birth records, death records, marriage Yeah. Oh, yeah. All, all that. Yeah. You know, we're just the starting point. And then in the end, what they come up with is a person of interest. Right. I, I think it's a good point. It's not like you put it into GEDmatch and it just pops out a name and there's your suspect. Exactly. You've got it exactly right. And this technology keeps advancing where do you see the site going? <laughs> a year ago from now, I had absolutely no sense that the year would be what it's turned out to be, that the site would be used for these purposes. I'm hesitant now to make any guesses as to where it'll head. I do think that as time passes, uh, what may seem shocking today will not seem shocking in the future. 
people got used to being able to share their personal information. And that's it's not a big deal today. The same thing will happen here. Law enforcement is using the site. That's a shock. My gosh, my my information may be used to catch a criminal in my family. But two or three years from now, yeah, okay, it's used for that. It's used for adoptions. It's used for, you know, whatever. You know, <laughs> It'll get accepted. Right. right. Are there places, I mean, because obviously you are in this world. Are there places where you feel DNA technology needs to improve or can go further? And what would you like to see? Ultimately, I suspect, and this may be really far out for you guys, but I suspect what's going to happen is that uh, babies at birth are going to have their DNA done. And that'll be a part of hopefully their control for the rest of their life. And as they go through life, they can pull little itty bitty parts of their DNA to be used as needed. If they have a see a cardiologist, they can pull out their little cardiology DNA and share it with that with the cardiologist. Or if they're doing genealogy, they can pull out those little pieces of that are valid for genealogy. But it, the control, I hope, is always with the person and never with governments. Right. Is there anything we didn't touch on? that you would like to share with our listeners? No, I, I'd like to emphasize that there, I really do not feel that there is any privacy that is lost. Um, no single person on GEDmatch has ever been identified as the person whose DNA was used to solve a mystery. And it's not going to happen unless some serial killer wants to put their DNA on our site. Then we could go directly and, and identify them. But that's not going to happen. We're we're really talking distant relatives for the most part. Right. Well, this has been fascinating. It's it's remarkable what you've done, uh, beginning as a hobby for your own family that's now bloomed into something that's being used in ways you never even anticipated. Kurt, we just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for being so honest with us about how GEDmatch works, uh, and sharing the GEDmatch story. It's been my pleasure, and... Uh... Hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks so much, Kurt. Paul Holes pitched the idea of using GEDmatch and genealogy research to identify the Golden State Killer to Sacramento County District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert and her investigative team, Lieutenant Kurt Campbell and investigative assistant Monica Sykowski. They were immediately on board, with Kirk and Monica subsequently tackling much of the detailed legwork. They outline the perseverance and tedious process employed in their ultimately successful search to identify Joseph James D'Angelo, the man they now believe to be the Golden State Killer. Let's welcome some of the key players from the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office who played a crucial role in the identification of the suspected Golden State Killer. District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, Investigative Assistant Monica Sykowski, and Lieutenant Kirk Campbell. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Hello. Hello. So, Monica, Paul Holes actually told us that he contacted you, maybe it was like November of 2017, and, and you guys called him in, and then with Kirk and D.A. Schubert, you guys had a meeting where he presented this idea. It was that kind of the beginning of this journey for you guys? What, what did you hear that you liked that then you guys decided to go for it? It was. This um, genealogy is completely new to law enforcement, and um, we were kind of hearing about this process for the first time. So we listened to it, you know, very interested in what it might do to forward the investigation. And we were really hopeful that it was something that could help us get to the end. So in the process of of trying to identify an offender, uh, running them through a database like a Jed match, what's the goal? Well, I mean, the goal is is obviously to identify people that um, share DNA with your offender, and based on how much DNA they share uh, is how closely they re- are related uh, to that person. And in this particular case, the closest matches you received were that of third cousins. So what's a third cousin? And, and that's a good question, because when I got started in this, I didn't know what a second cousin was. I barely knew what a first cousin was. So I had a pretty steep learning curve. But a third cousin is somebody you share great-great-grandparents with. And a, a second cousin is somebody you share great-grandparents with. Uh, you know, and it goes on down the line or up the line, however you want to go. So um, those are some uh, 
you know, things that you quickly learn once you start uh, working in genealogy is, you know, what are first, you know, second, third cousins, what are cousins once removed, you know, those types of things. And most people probably don't even know their third cousins, I'm assuming. I wouldn't know who my third cousin is. I wouldn't know is. mine. <laughs> most people probably don't know their second cousins. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that before we started this either. I just kind of assumed, oh, we're going to look at this list of people and Google them and see how they all know each other. But it wasn't that easy. So if you have, let's say, five or six third cousins that pop up, is it really just like you have to go down the pathway on each one of these third cousins to see if, if names overlap or, or how does that work? So basically, even though this sounds terrible, we're trying to do as little work as possible. So if we can find groups of matches that are related to one another, it would greatly cut down the amount of research that we need to do to get back down to the bottom of the tree to our offender. And so what you're what you're trying to do when you're when you're talking, say you have a, a group of, um, you know, third cousin matches. Well, they're going to share great, great grandparents. Well, you have, uh, you know, several sets of great, great grandparents. And so to go through each set would be is a ton of work and uh, you're going to go through hundreds of people. So that's where I say you want to try to find the the great-great-grandparent that is the common ancestor with those third cousins, because then you can focus on that set and you can disregard the others. So that's how we we try to get out of doing a, a, you know too much work. Now, let me ask, everything we're talking about, is this all lab work or does this portion of, of the investigation also involve tracking down names in different databases? Our part of it is really all research. It's all, you know, sitting behind a desk and doing research on Ancestry.com or, you know, Googling. Our part of it is not in the lab at all. It's the labor-intensive part where they have to spend enormous amounts of time poring over old newspapers or census records or military records. And it becomes, I mean, I've heard enough from them to understand the volume of work, but it's also, you know... The older generations tended to have more kids, and so you might have to go to the great-great-grandparents, and every set of those grandparents had, you know, they all had 10 kids who had 10 kids. And then, you know, so they'll pour over these records, and I think a lot of the filling in of the tree sometimes comes down to a newspaper article from the, you know, the 1920s that, you know, somebody's birthday party happened, and everybody that went to the party is named in the article because that's what they did back then. So it's... It's fascinating, but it's also very labor-intensive. It, it all is dependent on that very first search and the relationship you have in the tree. Because if you have somebody at, say, 200 centimorgans, you might think that's a second, maybe, cousin. Or if you have somebody at 80, then you're probably too far out. But if you get up to 1,000, then you're, you're going to solve that case probably fairly quickly. So, you know, starting with third cousins and knowing this takes time, like, what does that day-to-day work look like? Like, are, are you just looking down one specific tree at a time? Are you, like, how do you stay motivated? Like, how do you not lose the tree through the forest, right? I mean, there's so many names. <laughs> so many branches. It's like a puzzle, I think. Um, it's a little bit addicting. I think you have to have a certain personality type to have the patience to do it. Um, you know, if you, it's also a very collaborative process, I think. Um, you know, we kind of work in small groups, and if you hit a brick wall, you send an email to, you know, somebody else on your team, and they pick it up and might figure out the answer. And, you know, if you, if you need to, to put it down and pick it up the next day, it's there waiting for you. Right. And, and so you have this ginormous tree that you're trying to figure out, you know, smaller trees in it. How do you know you're working on like the, the right branch? Like at, at what point do you go, you know what, the, all, all these names are leading to, you know, Texas and I'm not looking for Texas. At what point do you say, okay, back to higher up and we'll try a different branch? Well, you really kind of, you really don't know. I mean, you really, you're, you're going to go where the, the DNA leads you and you have to kind of research each branch thoroughly all the way down to, because you never know when your person may pop up in the area you want. You know, they could be in one part of the country, but, you know, and boom, one generation later, they're, you know, in your part of the country. So you just really don't know uh, until you, you build down and, and identify the people in the, the, you know, the time period that you're looking for and the age range you're looking for, um, if you're, you know, in the right spot or not. That's that's insane. And ha- had any of you had any experience with genealogy before? 
None at all. No, none. Like I said, I didn't know what a second cousin was. So and I come from a small family. So, uh, no, I had uh, I had a very steep learning curve. So I imagine now genealogy has in some ways completely changed how you work. Uh, yeah, yes, it has. I mean, it's, you know, we're using, you know, different tools now that we hadn't used before, you know, prior to genealogy uh, coming into play. And um, yeah, so it is, it, it has uh, changed the way we do things for sure. I think the other thing that has really changed is the amount of expertise they've developed just in the last year, because every case they work, they learn something new. And I've watch the evolution and, and you know you might have cases that want that are simple but then they have other cases where you've got you know affairs you have adoptions some of the adoptions may be biological adoptions and that creates wow. confusion I would say in those trees and so that that's where their expertise is just evolving and but the persistence of it is really the critical component because you have to have the patience, as Monica says, to sit there and just keep plugging away at what they're doing. Right. So in a way, like if, you know, two generations ago, there was some extramarital affair that ended with a ba- like all of a sudden your entire tree now <laughs> changes and you have to go look somewhere else, too. Absolutely. Did the task ever feel insurmountable? Like, was it ever like, oh, man, how do we get through this? I mean, I think it, at first it can when you're not used to doing it and you haven't had success yet, then it can seem pretty frustrating. But then once you have had success, you know, you know, you eventually you keep chipping away at it. Something's going to break and you're going to get, you know, that breakthrough that you need. Uh, and, it, you know, you just have to keep hammering away at it and it'll come. There was a point along the way in all of these cases where I, I think I said to Monica, is this stuff going to work? And her answer was, it's the greatest hope we have. And that was a very true statement. And it's very true for all of these other unsolves that have the potential of using this new technology. When you, you finally, after all this work, did get a positive DNA match on a suspect, what did that feel like? Um, I think a lot of us, we've talked about that, and, and I think the, you, the word we, we probably used the most was surreal, that, uh, you know, after all that time, that to finally, um, you know, have a, have a name, it just didn't seem real. You know, it just almost seemed like a dream that, uh, you know, did this really happen? I guess that was probably, you know, my best recollection. I totally agree. I mean, surreal is really the best word I can use to describe it because it was our first case we were doing, and we didn't know if it was going to work. And so this investigative genetic genealogy um, has already changed many lives, um, and not just in these Sacramento cases, um, but GenMatch told us they know of 23 cold cases that were solved with this technique that you guys kind of pioneered and, and tried out. How does it feel to know that you're part of this momentous shift in the tools available to law enforcement? Well, Monica doesn't like to acknowledge this, probably Kirk neither, but at one point I sent him a text and said, you do realize you're changing the world. And in many ways they are because, you know, these are cases where there's real life people that were victimized and families that have, you know, desperately sought answers. And so this is just another, it is probably the most significant revolutionary tool we've seen in forensic DNA since it came into the use in the mid 90s. So it is changing the world when it comes to forensics. It, it, you know, we're very mindful that it needs to be balanced appropriately with privacy and public safety. But it, it, it has and will continue to change lives. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful that Paul Holes included us in this journey. I'm, I'm sure he thought of us because he knows how passionate Anne Marie was about this case. And we had worked really collaboratively with him, you know, over the, the previous couple years. But I think it took the right mix of people. It wasn't just any one person. But I know that we're all really thankful and grateful that um, that this happened and that we got to be a part of it because there are so many people that worked on this case over the years. And I almost feel guilty sometimes that I got to have even just a small part of it at the end. But, you know, the the technology just wasn't there all these years, and I'm just so glad that this finally happened. Yeah, and I, I echo that. It, it, it really was a, a, a team effort. You know, Monica and I were fortunate enough to 
me along with Paul Holes, um, Steve Kramer, and Melissa Parasot from the uh, FBI, as well as uh, Barbara Ray Venter, the genealogist that uh, helped us and kind of guided us, guided us, and make sure we didn't go off the rails. So it, it was a, a, a you know a smaller team effort within a much much larger effort of uh, investigators that have really tirelessly worked on this case uh, for many many more years than Monica and I have been involved in. Some have. Uh, you know, dedicated uh, almost their full careers to this. And so, you know, I'm I'm just happy that we, like, we played a small part in it and that both for the investigators involved, the victims' families and the victims involved that, well, we have developed a name and um, that... Made an arrest. And made an arrest, you know, put it that way. Yeah, when you think about it, I guess... Four months of genealogy research in a 42-year search doesn't seem like much, but I'm sure some of those days and weeks must have felt very, very long. So thank you for sticking with it and taking a chance on this new technology. And thank you all three for being with us today. You guys are incredible. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. District Attorney Schubert will return in a future podcast episode to provide more insight into the timeline and trial process for Joseph James D'Angelo, the alleged Golden State Killer. And coming up in next week's podcast, we compare the movements of Joseph James D'Angelo to those of the Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, and Original Night Stalker to show how law enforcement is connecting those dots and building the case against their prime suspect. And tune in to HLN this Sunday night, February 17th at 9 p.m. for the first of two all-new TV episodes of Unmasking a Killer, covering the capture and arrest of Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo. You can also watch the entire Unmasking a Killer documentary series on demand with CNN Go. And the entire companion podcast series, including these new episodes, is also available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joe Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for listening.